Uh, would you take your Bibles and turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 to 16. We're going to continue our study this morning in this book. And we come today to what is considered to be the central passage in this letter that Paul wrote to Timothy. Listen to what he writes, 1 Timothy 3, verses 14 to 16. Although I hope to come to you, uh, I am writing to you these instructions so that if I am delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. Beyond all question, the mystery of godliness is great. He appeared in a body, was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, was taken up, in glory. Father, thank you for your word and the power of it. Help us to understand this particular passage we're going to talk about this morning. And would you speak to us by your Holy Spirit as we think about Christ and all that he has done for us. We ask this in his name. Amen. There are times when delays can be fortunate, and this was one of them. We see in this uh, letter that we are reading that Paul had hoped to come to visit Timothy soon, but was unable to do that. And because of his delay, he wrote this letter to Timothy. Imagine if he had been able to get there when he had wanted to, and we would never have heard the things that he had written here. God had a different plan. And God held Paul up for a time so that he might write this part of his word for us. He writes a very important letter here. He writes so that we might know how we are to behave in God's house. How we are to conduct ourselves in God's family, if you will, the church of the living God. And not just how we are to conduct ourselves when we meet together in these corporate times, but in all of life. And that's why Paul has written in this letter about things like the importance of sound doctrine importance of knowing the Word of God and building that into our life, the importance of prayer as a discipline in our life. He's talked about the need for personal holiness, for us to grow in our character and to become more Christ-like in our conduct. He's talked about the power of the gospel to change lives, and all of us have a story about that. All of us who have come to know Christ as our Savior can tell of what He has done in our life. And he's talked about the need for godly leadership in the church, to shepherd the people of God and to help us to grow in our relationship with him. All of those subjects are important for us as we look at the church. Because how we view the church will determine how we act. For example, if the church were a business and that was the reason that we were meeting together, well, then the bottom line for everything that we did would be our profit. And that's what we'd be concerned about. We'd be concerned about making decisions that were economic decisions that added to the bottom line. And we'd all come and we'd all do our jobs. And, you know, if you knew the people next to you, it wouldn't really matter that much. I mean, as long as you did your work and put in your time, you could do that and go home and everybody would be happy. But the church is not a business. If the church was a country club, for example, well, then we just show up when we wanted to. 
We'd come when we wanted to go, and we wouldn't come if we had other things to do. And when we came together, we might enjoy a meal. We'd meet with our friends. We'd play some golf, and then we'd leave. But there'd be no sense of mission, no sense of purpose as to why we are here other than to play golf, say. There'd be no service, no work in the community, no life transformation. We just come when we wanted to. But the church is not a country club. And in the same way, if the church was like a ball game, well, then we'd come together and we might, you know, cheer and yell if there was a really good play or we'd eat some popcorn or drink some pop and have a good time. If the game was good, we'd stay. If the team wasn't doing very well, we might go somewhere else and look for a better team to cheer for. We'd be spectators, watching others play the game, and we'd never really get involved ourselves. We'd just sort of sit back and watch what everyone else might be doing who is in the game. But the church is not a ball game either. The church is not described that way in Scripture. Instead, Paul uses three different pictures to describe the church. Three pictures that really should influence the way that we live. And I think this topic is very important for us. Because there are many people today who equate church with what happens on Sunday morning. That's kind of the way it's expressed. I'm going to church. And they tend to think of what happens on Sunday morning as being the primary focus of that. What we do on Sunday is important. It is very important when we come to worship together and to celebrate the Lord's Supper and to hear God's Word preached. And that is vital to our faith. But this isn't all the church is. This is just one part of it. Church involves relationships with one another, building one another up, helping and serving one another. Church is involved in being an, uh, active in the community, being involved to make Christ known and to introduce others to follow Him. Church is much more than just what takes place in one hour on a Sunday morning. And we need to understand that from the pictures that Paul has given. So what is the church? And what are the terms that Paul uses to describe the church? Well, one of those is this. He tells us that the church is a family. He writes these things so that we will know how to conduct ourselves in God's household, in God's family. The Scripture tells us that when we believed in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, we were born again into a new family. It tells us in the Gospel of John that to all who received Him, to those who believed in His name, He gave the right to become a child of God. And so when we placed our faith in Jesus Christ as our Savior and Lord, we entered into this new relationship, not only with God, but with one another, with those who belong to Christ. And God is our Father, and Christ is our brother. Now that's amazing what the Bible says about that, that God now is our Father. And Jesus says that we can call Him Abba or Daddy in that intimate personal relationship. Christ is called our brother in the Scripture. It says in the book of Hebrews that both the one who makes men holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. We are brothers and sisters 
in the body of Christ and we will be for all of eternity. You ever think about that? I mean, imagine what that's like. That We have entered into this family and we are going to be brothers and sisters together for all of eternity. We better get along then, right? As we think about that. I mean, we're going to be together a long time here. And that's why these relationships and growing together in that is so important. What are some of the characteristics of a healthy family? Well, there is love. There's a genuine concern for one another. There is forgiveness because we have all sinned. We all make mistakes. And there are times when we need to say that. I was wrong. I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? There is acceptance. We belong uh, to one another in this body of Christ. And there is acceptance, understanding that God is not finished with us yet. We all have flaws and things that He is working on in our life and helping us to grow. And we need to be patient with one another even as He is patient with us. But there should be a sense of family, that this is home, that this feels good, it feels right to come together and worship and meet with our brothers and sisters. We also are committed to one another. And we work together to help one another grow in our relationship with Christ. We learn to take responsibility, too, for the things that we are to do in the family. I think of uh, several couples in our church recently have had a new baby boy or baby girl born. And when that happens in your family, that is such an exciting, momentous event. And when you bring your, uh, if it's your first child or second or third, it really doesn't matter. You're excited about each one that comes home. When you bring that new baby home, you know, you know um, that it's going to be a lot of work. You're going to have to get up at night to feed them and change them and take care of them. But you do it because you love them. And you are so blessed by this new child that God has brought into your home that you would do anything for them. You love them and care for them. And you continue to do that through the years to teach them and train them and help them grow as they mature. But if they reach the age where they are, you know, take an age like 16 or 18 or something like that, and you're still doing everything for them, and you're still, in a sense, feeding them and changing them and taking care of everything in their life, then something's wrong. Something's wrong because we want our kids to learn to take responsibility in the family also. There are chores, there are things that they need to do. There's work around the house that needs to uh, be done and you all work together on that, not because you're trying to earn a place in your family, but because you are a family. And families take responsibility and they share together and they use their gifts in that way. And the same is true in the body of Christ. God never intended for anyone in the body of Christ to be a spectator and to say, you know, well, this is all for me and I'm just here and I kind of watch and observe. No. He wants each one of us as a part of the family to use the gifts and the abilities that we have been given in His service. And we work together and when we do that, we find our relationships grow stronger and there's joy in seeing God use us. And we also help one another. We help one another when we are hurting or when one is down or afflicted. There was a story I came across about a young girl who had been injured in a terrible accident and she had lost her arm. 
And because of how she felt about herself and the seriousness of this injury, she didn't want to go to school, she didn't want to go to church, she didn't want to be out in public for a long time. And finally, she mustered up the courage through the encouragement of her parents to come to church, and she was there. And on that particular Sunday, the uh, Sunday school teacher was having the kids do uh, the hand motions to one of those uh, children's poems that you're probably familiar with. You've probably all done this if you've gone through Sunday school where the kids fold their hands and do here's the church and here's the steeple and open the doors and see all the people. And here was this young girl who had lost her arm and tears started to fill her eyes. And a young boy who was there saw what was happening and came and he knelt next to her and he put his hand in hers. Here's the church. Here's the steeple. Open the doors and see all the people. He came alongside of her, recognizing her need. It was a vivid example of what the body of Christ is to be like as we join hand in hand and we come together to help one another when one is hurting or wounded. That's what the church does. We pray for each other. We give encouragement. We exhort. We minister to one another when there are needs in the body of Christ and we help one another in this journey through life. The church is a family in the best sense of the word. The church is also a spiritual gathering. Paul describes the church here as the church of the living God. You see, the church is different from any other organization on earth. The church is not a political organization. The church is not like the PTA or an educational foundation. The church is not like the Lions Club or the Rotary Club, even though we may do service projects as well. But the church is different from all of those organizations because of who we belong to. We belong to Jesus Christ. We are the church of the God who lives forever. And He is in our midst. The word for church in Greek is ekklesia. And it means an assembly, or it uh, means uh, called out ones. And that's an interesting kind of word picture for the church. It reminds us that we have been called out of the world to live for God. Uh, He has called us out as His children to live differently. We're to think differently. We're to have different values. We're to live differently than the world around us. Why? Because we belong to Him. And we are called to glorify God in this world and to make Him known. And when we gather to worship and pray and fellowship together, God is in our midst. He is with us. The Bible says whenever even two or three gather in His name, He says, I am there present with you. And that makes all the difference in the world. In the Old Testament, there was a story of when Moses was speaking with God, and he knew that God was present with him. God was visibly present in the pillar of fire uh, by night and the pillar of cloud by day as he camped among the Israelites. And when he moved, they moved. And when he stayed, they stayed. And when they set up camp, the tabernacle was placed at the very center of the camp. 
And the glory of God would be in that place and it would fill it. And Moses understood the significance of that. That was a visual picture of something that was also to be true spiritually. God was in our heart and in our lives. And so in Exodus 33, verses 15 and 16, Moses said this. He said, If your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. For how will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? God, if you aren't with us, if you aren't present in our midst, then we are no different than any other organization. But God, when you are here and you work in us and you are present in our life, you change us. And we are empowered by your Holy Spirit. And there is a change that even the world can see when we know and follow Jesus Christ. You see, what makes the church different is the presence of God in our midst. It is Emmanuel, God with us. And thirdly, he tells us that the church is like a building. It is the means that God has chosen to bring his truth to the world. He tells us that the church is the pillar and foundation of the truth. Now that's an interesting description because we know the Bible also says that Jesus is the foundation of the church. And that everything that we do is built upon the foundation of Jesus Christ and the work of the apostles and the prophets who went before us, who brought us the Word of God. And yet there is another sense here in which he is saying the church itself is also the pillar and foundation of the truth. Now what does he mean by that? Well, what does a pillar do? A pillar holds things up. Holds things up like the roof of a building or things like that when it is placed as that kind of support. And there is a sense in which the church is the pillar and support of the truth in the world. That we are here to lift up Jesus Christ and we declare His truth to the world. And so when we come and we meet together, it's why we teach from the Word of God. It's why we lift up Jesus Christ in our praise and in our worship services. But we're also to do that with our lives all through the week. That we, by the way that we live, by the joy in our heart, by the peace we've experienced from God, by the good news that we have to share with others, are to lift up Jesus Christ. Because it's all about Him. In 1999, you probably heard the story of Payne Stewart, the golfer, who died in a plane crash. He had taken off with others from Florida, and somehow they believed that his plane uh, lost pressure. Oxygen went out. It was a small plane, not equipped with oxygen masks. And so those people that were on board um, all uh, were very likely unconscious, and the plane flew on an autopilot until it finally crashed in a field in South Dakota. It was a tragic end for this man and the other individuals on that plane. You see, just before that event had taken place, about six months before, Payne Stewart had won, for the second time, the PGA Open. And it was a pretty exciting victory for him. It had been several years between those major wins in his career. 
And God was also doing something very special in his life at that time. Payne Stewart had come to know Christ as his Savior and Lord, and he wanted to share that with others. And so uh, about six months before this event took place, when he passed away, he and his friends had had a party kind of celebrating this victory. They had met just a few days after he had won the PGA. And the focal point of the party was they had a big screen there, and they were replaying uh, his final round. And when it came to the end, and he saw himself sinking that putt, and then moments later giving credit to God for what he had done in his life, it brought tears to his own eyes when he thought about the dramatic change that Christ had made in his life. And he didn't really want others to see the tears, and so he kind of turned away, and he started to walk away a little bit, and his pastor, who was there, J.B. Collinsworth, noticed him walking toward the back of the room, and he went over to talk to him, and he put his arm around him, and he said, Pain, he said, I just want you to know I appreciate what God's doing with your heart. And he said he looked at me, and there were now tears streaming down his face, and he said, J.B., I'm not going to be a Bible thumper, and I'm not going to stand up on some stump, but I want everybody to know it's Jesus. It's Jesus who has made this change in my life. That's what it's all about. That's what it means to lift up Jesus Christ by our words and by our deeds. That's why we come together to sing our songs of praise, but it's also, again, as we leave and people ask us, you know, well, what is it? There's something different about you. Why do you react the way you do to maybe circumstances in a way where you show God's peace or you believe that He's in control or you pray or you respond differently to events in our world? Let them know that it's because of Jesus and what He has done in your life. So what is the truth that we are to lift up? Well, in verse 16, Paul tells us that it is the mystery of godliness. He said, beyond all question, the mystery of godliness is great. And what is that mystery of godliness? Well, in the Bible, the Bible uses the word mystery to mean a secret that was once hidden but has now been revealed. And what is this secret of godliness? It is Jesus Christ. It's the truth of what God has done in his life. It's the truth that's been revealed in the gospel about Jesus Christ. That the key to godliness is knowing Jesus Christ. The key to salvation is knowing Jesus Christ. The key to a changed life is knowing Jesus Christ. Jesus even tells us that eternal life is to know God and to know his Son. It's to come into that relationship. And Paul says, beyond all question, literally it reads, by common confession, we as a church would agree that the mystery of godliness is great. How can it be that God would die for me? How can it be that my king would take my place and pay the penalty that I deserve? I think of the words of that song that we sung that my sinless Savior died for me. And because He was willing to do that, my sinful soul is counted free because God the just is willing to look on Him and pardon me. What an amazing, amazing truth that is. And Paul quotes what most believe here was an early Christian hymn. 
Uh, he talks about uh, the person of Jesus Christ, and all six lines here refer to Jesus. And I want you to think about what he says. He tells us that Jesus was true man. That he who existed from eternity took on human flesh. And he entered this world as a tiny baby. And he became a man just like us. He appeared in a body. And secondly, he tells us that he was true God. That he was vindicated by the Spirit. And that word vindicated means to be proved righteous or proved right in what he was claiming. Jesus claimed to be God. He said, I and the Father are one. He said, there's no other way to come to the Father but then through me. And he was proven right in his claims by the power of the Holy Spirit who worked through him in this life. His miracles, his teaching, his authority, his death, his resurrection all prove that Jesus is no ordinary man. He is the God-man, God in human flesh. And thirdly, he was seen by the angels or witnessed to by the angels. And you think about his life and ministry. The angels announced his birth. The angels attended to him after he experienced the temptation in the wilderness. And throughout his ministry, the angels came and went attending to him. They were there with him to strengthen him in Gethsemane before the cross. They were there at the time of his arrest. There were twelve legions of angels ready, armed. If at a moment he had called upon them, they would have come and put an end to all that was going to be done. They were present in the garden tomb at his resurrection. And they were there at his ascension. The angels in the invisible world that we do not see all have seen and beheld Jesus Christ. But this same Jesus was and continues to be preached among the nations in the visible world. What began with the apostles continues today. What began with especially Paul as he took the gospel to the Gentiles continues to be uh, carried out as he is preached among the nations and made known to all the peoples of the earth. The task remains. There are still those who have never heard the name of Jesus. And that's one of the reasons we join together in partnership with other churches and denominations and agencies and missions organizations to bring the gospel to the ends of the earth. He was believed on in the world, and today over one billion people would claim to be Christians. Only God knows those who are truly saved, but that is a staggering number. Over one billion people who would claim the name of Jesus as their Savior. And one day the Bible tells us they will come from every people group on the earth and gather around his throne. And sixth, it says that he was taken up in glory. This same Jesus who lived among us and walked this earth is now seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. He is exalted in heaven, and he is worshipped by men and angels as Lord of all. He has been given the name that's above every other name, it is not the name of Jesus, as sometimes Christians might think that that name that's above every other name is not the name of Jesus, but it is the title of Lord. 
And one day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There is no one like Him. True man, true God. Witness in heaven, proclaimed on earth, believed on in the world, and exalted and glorified in heaven. This we believe. You see, the church is not a business. It's not a country club. It's not a sporting event. The church is a family where we belong to God and we need one another. And the church is a spiritual assembly. We are the church of the living God and we have been called out of the world to live for Him. And the church is like a building in the sense that we are to lift up Jesus Christ and to declare His truth to a world so that others might come to know Him too. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word. Would You help us to put these things into practice in our church and in our life daily, that we might lift You up and honor You in all that we say and do. And Father, would You be pleased that through us and through our ministry that hundreds and thousands someday might come to know Christ in this community through the outreach of this church and the work that is being done and through our partnership with other churches in this community who know you and love you. We ask that for your sake and for your glory. Amen.